Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This season, we've asked our socios to choose their favourite interview from our archive. The big interview started in April 2015, and we've now done over 200 episodes to 8 million listens. Here's one of our socios explaining why the archive interview you're about to hear is their personal favourite. Hi, Graham. This is Peter Gordon, the St Mirren fan from Singapore. I would like to hear the Darren Fletcher interview once more. Darren's interview was what locked me in to the big interview from the start. And this is a guy who maximised his talent, made a great career in Manchester United, was captain of Scotland and really is a role model for all young players coming forward. It's a pleasure to be with you. The biscuits are fantastic. Thank you very much. The tea is magnificent. Um, we're overlooking one of the great football arenas in uh, Manchester, uh, your back garden. When, when I started to chat to you and I was taken with your passion about football, one of the times we had a chat, I'm certain, was that you were out of the game because you were not well, you were recuperating. And I think a couple of times you started travelling with fans to go and watch United. How is it possible to do something like that when you're you know, a world-famous football guy at the biggest club in the world? How the hell did you pull that off? Well, funny incident is we're trying to get my ticket in the Etihad. It's Man City. It's away in the cup. And um, basically where we got dropped off, I couldn't get anywhere near the entrance. So I'm walking. I literally did a whole lap of the Etihad through all the Man City fans to get to the front to collect my ticket. And how nobody recognised me to this day, I still don't know. Don't get me wrong, I put my hood up. But um, I was walking on eggshells and I could see the odd little glance, but there was almost like, nah, it can't be. And then obviously get my ticket and get into the fans. But, you know, I'm a massive football fan and I don't really see myself as a recognisable. I, I know that might sound crazy, but I just, I don't really see myself as famous. So I almost felt like, oh, I'll be all right. Nobody will know who I am. And that might sound crazy to you, but that's the way I felt. And I, and I just wanted to miss football. Wanted to support my team and wanted to take in away the experience with the United fans. Was it because one of the crazy mistakes God made was not giving me any decent talent at football? Because that would have completed me as a as a as a person. But I always imagine that if I was able to earn a, earn a living like you do, that's the kind of thing I would do. I want to be with the fans and going a bit nuts to support my team, shout, let off steam, because you could have easily sat in the fit box or in mm. the, whatever. What did you expect to enjoy most about the experience? It, did you sing? I did, yeah. <laughs> now, that's the thing. I can't speak highly enough of the Man United away fans. Yeah. Atmosphere at Old Trafford's fantastic. You know, mm. Champions League nights, big games, different class. But our away fans are special. And I realised that when I was playing for the club. Away from home, we've got a real good bunch of away fans who sing relentlessly, who support the team, who've got great passion. 
and are just die-hard United fans and I wanted to be a part of that mm. and it really you know it brought back memories of going to watch Celtic as a youngster mm-hmm. I loved everything about the game I was there hours before kick-off mm-hmm. I watched the warm-ups I sang mm-hmm. every song I loved everything about it and it'd been a while since I'd experienced that as a fan and and when you know, I turned into a fan because I physically wasn't at the training ground and I was watching Manchester United as a fan so why not go and take in the whole experience as a fan and get right involved with the away fans that whole experience like for, for me poker terms you show me your parking I'll show you Pataudrick okay <laughs> which in the rules of poker trumps it every time but as a, as a wee lad going in the 60s to watch Aberdeen in their, what was then a Chelsea strip they played in all blue which is my, well, my lucky blue jersey was what I wore when I greeted them coming back from the 1970 Cup final. But the things that I remember were things like tobacco smell mm-hmm. from the old farmers who sat around us and they would put their tobacco in their pipe. And I, if I got Pataudry now, they're all dead, they're all gone. Football has changed in how you support it and who's around you. But that, the smell of that tobacco and their rich sort of voices will live with me forever. And that was part of the whole ritual of going to a game. Mm-hmm. What are the things that you miss about being a fan from those days that you talked about when you were young and you went there and you sat there watching the whole the stadium fill gradually, what are the things you remember and that you miss? I miss Andy Gorham breaking my heart. <laughs> I mean, I was a Celtic fan who waited a long time for them to he, win something. He, he did it over and over again, didn't he? I mean, we used to batter them yep. and loud up a break down the wing. We'd mm-hmm. clip one in to get uh, McCoy. It'd be close to wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Andy Gorham would have saved every shot and I'd have been in tears crying yeah. like... and. I think I had to wait till 95 before I seen Celtic win something. Airdrie in the cup final? Airdrie, Van Hoydonk. Big Van Hoydonk, yeah. That's yeah. why I think Van Hoydonk was one of my heroes as a kid, just because that goal almost. Yeah. But, you know, going, I got to the game really early. I was very, my uncle had a director, a box, a real small one, probably the smallest one in Parkhead. But, but, but he had to get there, you know, a good few hours before the game to enjoy the whole experience. So me and my little cousin, we had the tickets. So we'd be there from one o'clock or half twelve waiting for the three o'clock kickoff. I just loved everything about it. The watching the teams come in off the bus, mm. booing the away ones. Yeah. Getting yourself a burger, getting yourself a programme, you know, all the Glasgow voices, the, the noise, the, the accent, you know, something that was different to me. The whole experience, getting in and watching the warm-up, watching John Collins used to do his, his technique, keep you up, he's in the warm-up, and I was obsessed with that. Mm. Because everyone else was doing the usual stuff and he'd be on his shoulders flicking it, and fantastic technique. There was an old man who used to sit behind me, and I think the two tickets as well, me and my cousins weren't beside each other, so basically you're sat in there, probably 11, 12, 13-year-old on your own, and I think he realised that, and he used to like give me sweets and mm-hmm. things like that, his old mints and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and I think he realised I was there morning, I was almost like, you know, always chatting to me, what do I think the scores are going to be, and, and I always remember my conversations with him. Well, I was going to pick up on you having gone to the City Cup to Iowa, is like, whenever I meet people in football or interview them for this podcast they always say how's it going in Barcelona will they win this year and I must come out then they don't <laughs> but you did yeah just out of sheer enthusiasm for that. it might have been my pattern conversation I admit but it was a classical again what drove that because everybody, I mean it everybody says oh, I must come out one day I'm out. and if they're not working they don't come out but you did what drove that was probably my love of Spanish football from when it started on a sky. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed with Fernando Redondo mm-hmm. and I watched USA 94 and it's like, wow, this midfielder, centre midfield, controlling the game with his left foot. And then on the back of that, I went to watch Ireland lose to Holland in the 
Euro qualifier to get to Euro 96 at Anfield and Seedorf ran the game for Holland so all of a sudden you got two of my favourite players playing together at Real Madrid it's just started on on Sky Spanish football and just by no knowledge no internet back then you know maybe picking up the odd magazine and then obviously seeing Redondo and Seedorf together I thought wow uh, and I fell in love with Spanish football and then the Classico is such a big game just to watch at the time when I came to watch probably two of the best teams in the world mm. you know it was the Barca team it was at the height of the quality of football was extraordinary and the quality of in, the intensity of the competition was mm. really extraordinary I think it was a cup tie it I was think. Yeah. I think yeah but I know Barcelona will definitely won the match if my memory's right they, they went through uh, I wish we should, I should have checked the, traditionally yeah, should I should have, have checked yeah. before this did our research we, we don't follow <laughs> the rules here we're outside the white lines we're the Cantona podcast <laughs> but I think they drew 2-2 two, two in, the, in the game and went through having right. won the, oh, yeah, the first leg right. and they went through, they went through but, you know it got quite nasty but you saw football of playing brilliant creative football when the, the battles are that intense I think is much more difficult than when you can impose yourself and there's slightly less running on it and there's less psychological build up and the physical challenges for Spain maybe they were only kind of tasty-ish for the Premier League but for Spain it was getting pretty vicious then what did you enjoy about that, that experience? Uh, I loved everything about it it's one of those games you know if you love football it's a classical you know it's Barcelona against Real Madrid in the new camp I mean, you know if you're picking the games to go to that's, that's it's not a volcanic a- atmosphere though is it apart from the singing and whistling at the beginning it's it, not it's quite a theatre style atmosphere I've always felt yeah exactly it's very theatre you're right it's not an old firm no it's not, it's not that no you never feel yeah. like there's going to be trouble at any point I think that was the thing and it is their passion is for the love of their team and the love of the game, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. which they can enjoy in silence. It's not. It's not so tribal. Is there's something in our blood, both in England, Ireland, but certainly in Scotland, there's something. I don't know if we're aggressive or if we're winners or we're conquerors throughout history or soldiers. I, I don't know. But you said edge, and I know neither of us are saying it's nice to be in a potentially violent atmosphere. But edge is the right word, and football's better with an edge, isn't it? I I, I think at least. I agree it's the way we're brought up you know but I think football is better with an edge mm. you know that's what the game's all about and the fans the atmosphere play as big a part in the game as the as the players do I know that might but that's true that's the fans make football mm. you know we're talking here as two fans you know mm. about football if without fans football I know plenty more famous people have said that before me without fans there is no football you know and I think that's what drives competition and competitiveness in players as well mm. The sad thing for me, given that I live in Spain, is that you very nearly ended up, you were close to ending up in La Liga. Mm. The Valencia thing was real. Um, It was at a time when you were already tempted to move, I think, to get more football, not to get away from United. West Brom are a far better club, bigger club. (laughs) Hello, hello Tony. (laughs) Hello, West Brom's fans. But Valencia would have been fun if it had come off. What was the situation and, and to what degree were you tempted? I was extremely tempted, you know. I would have thought it would have been a fantastic challenge for me personally mm. and uh, a fantastic club, you know. Mm. I was really excited about everything about it. it. It started very early in the transfer window as well. It was probably one of the first options I had. And for me, it was like, wow, if that could happen, mm. I would love that to happen. It would be great. What a challenge for me and my family and everything about it to go and play in, in Spanish football for one of the biggest clubs in Spain. You'd have gobbled up that cultural experience it's interesting you go immediately to the boys and to your wife that it would have been a great experience for the family which is how Phil Neville is mm. treating it now he's 
so and we we Brits as footballers we, we get a bad reputation for not learning the language and Phil has gone out in the papers and said if I don't learn Spanish in three months I'm going home yeah. and you know Philly wasn't joking either oh, yeah. but I, I believe that you'd have embraced the whole experience the, the culture the language whatever the history of the club too no? Oh definitely I researched even more history of the club about Valencia I was like getting right into it and you know it's just a shame Phil maybe didn't go six months before yeah. he could have um, <laughs> helped me sort that move out you know I know I'm, I'm really happy and I've got so much respect I, for where he's from we both know that we yeah. know that and, uh, but you know it's what a challenge it would have been it was something that really excited me unfortunately it, it didn't happen and and it'll be one of those things that I maybe not regret but would maybe think back on wow imagine that had happened that would have been life's full of the ones that got away as well isn't it exactly a really striking memory of mine Carrington one day you'd help warm up an atmosphere I was going into where I didn't know Robin Van Persie very well two things really struck me in an interview with him one his absolute obsession with winning the Champions League he stated he was desperate to win it but also for me, a really strange thing, the impact that the manager had had on him, that he said from a distance he'd not been sure why Manchester United were so hard to beat and hard to play against, but he came in and lo and behold, he went, I think he said to you, or you said to me, it's him, it's, it's, it's that fella. You presumably, you were there for nearly 350 games, or maybe even more than that, so you had a long chunk of what Robin Van Persie enjoyed. What's that experience like of being around that guy as a as a just a manager, but as a, a somebody who changes your life? I presume influences your your beliefs and your behaviours. What kind of experience has that been in in human terms, not just as a footballer? The best thing I can I did everything to please Alex Ferguson. You mm. you wanted to earn his well done, mm. and you wanted to play from you know you wanted to win from you wanted to do everything for him because of with how much respect he treated you, with how much he learned you, and how much of a winner he was. You know, you were so, you had a presence, you were so overawed by him, but at the same time, feel like your father. You know, mm-hmm. he would flip between that, between one minute you were like petrified and like, oh my, you know, that sucks, and you're a little bit cautious. Mm-hmm. And then within two minutes, you were chatting away to him as if he was like a member of your family. And that was the same with everyone. I'm not just saying that because I'm Scottish, that was the same with every player. It's it's, it's so hard to put into words of how, how it influential he is and how what made him so special but I know for a fact that everyone was just wanted it for him more than themselves sometimes mm-hmm. and he had that effect on you that he wanted to win for him and to please him and to be, for him to say well done was the ultimate compliment Would, would that be right in steering because I've met him a lot over the years and I've listened to many many players of different ages and a couple of different clubs talking about him while he's clearly a man for whom football is everything and he's soaked in the traditions of football and he's made football as a sport better. I, I'm always struck by the degree to which this it's this it's called man management, but it's more than that. It's the, the human side, his decisions, how he can treat people when he chooses to, because he can also be brusque and ruthless. There's no getting away from that. But he can make people feel special, he can teach them, he can make them give more than they knew they were capable of doing. That's an ability he's got, am I right? And secondly, that would have been transferable, I suspect, to almost anything he chose to do. Yeah, he's a winner. You know, no matter what he chose to do, he'd, he would have succeeded and won it because, you know, he had just that inner drive and determination. It's, 
the other thing about was you never knew what you were going to get, you know. He could have the most simplest team talk where it was literally 20, 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Or he could tell you an old story mm-hmm. and, and make you a hair stand up on the back of your neck. You could come in at half time where you've played great and he could go absolutely mental. You could come in where you've played terrible and he's calm and he picks on one or two tactical things. You didn't know what you were going to get. You know, you could walk in at 3 0 up, you could get one of the biggest bollockings of the season. Or you could walk in 1 0 down and he would be so calm and he would go to his tactical board and he would pick one or two tactics and calm everyone down and you'd go on to win the game. His team talks before Champions League games were something I'll, I'll never forget, you know, the, when it got to semi finals, finals, quarter finals, how calm he was and the way he went into just tell a little story about something, about maybe someone he'd met. It's his famous one about the game of chess before, about chess before the final in Moscow, about his upbringing, about our upbringing, about anything. And he'd just tell a story, translate it to what we were about to experience, and you just went onto that pitch, full of confidence, but also with, you know, your heart and your mind full of of, of things that he'd, he'd spoke to you about. You've you've surprised me a little bit about using the phrase the calmness before a Champions League game, but you've reminded me of something where, with ears this size, you sometimes detect things that aren't just words. And I would go, I reported on every game when United won the treble because I happened to be the United reporter then, and I remember thinking that the difference between the Alex Ferguson briefings to the media before a league game or after a league game compared to those Mondays or Tuesdays at Old Trafford when he spoke to the media, never mind the players, we were unimportant, but there there was a, a completely different aura. He would talk about football to us, he would talk about the game, he would willingly talk about the opponents when... If you weren't in favour or if you uh, if you were in a bad mood on a Friday before a league game, then I can't use the word because my mum's listening, but mm-hmm. it's Anglo-Saxon and you wouldn't get anything if he wasn't in the mood. In fact, he could be banned. But on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, it felt like a masterclass for us. So I recognised the, the different intensity around my shirt, but calmness is, or a special calmness is, is a little bit of a surprise to me. I, I might have thought that there'd be more agitation, a bit more intensity, a bit more mm. anxiety about the club. No, because his final words after every team talk was make sure you go and enjoy yourself. And that was no matter whether, you know, that was his final words every time. And then the biggest thing for me was after he did his team talk, he would sit in the corner with his programme and he'd cross his leg and he'd read his programme. And that calmness almost reflected in I've got ultimate trust in you guys. I know we're prepared from Monday all the way through to this game or however long we've done our work now. There's nothing more I can say. I'm not going to walk around the changing room like a man possessed and this Mm -hmm. and that. Mm -hmm. And then it was trust in the players Mm -hmm. that he had ultimate trust in and the team he picked and belief. And whether he did it on purpose or what, it it was just a calmness that reflected on the rest of the team because there's the greatest manager of all time, in my opinion, we're about to play in one of the biggest games of the season, a Champions League semi-final, and he's got his cup of tea, and he's reading the old programme, and he's chatting away to everyone, maybe bringing up an old fact in the programme, and, and you know, because his football memory is fantastic. He remembers every name of every player, and he'll chat to you about, about something to, in the programme, because his work's done now, and it's over mm-hmm. to you. You're in your own zone. You take him for the information. He trusts you to go out and deliver, and if he feels that he needs to say any more, he'll do it at half-time. 
I can understand how if you're a good footballer and you're well trained and then he hands responsibility over to you, how you would rise to that. I can see the power of that. This isn't a test, <clears throat> but I'd like you to tell me if you know who's saying this. If Barcelona will miss Danny, Manchester United will miss Darren Fletcher. Darren is more important than people think. His work in midfield, especially in the midfield wars in crucial matches, is very important. Manchester United will miss his pace and aggression in defensive actions. He eats opponents in defensive transition. In possession, he might not have the same magic as Ryan Giggs, but he's dynamic, he makes movements, he creates spaces. I like him a lot, and I believe it's not an easy decision as to how to replace him. I believe that with Darren absent, Xavi and Andres Iniesta are happy. You're starting for 10. It's between one or two. It's the one you think it is. It's Jose Mourinho. Yeah, I was going to say, it's either Fabregas or Jose Mourinho. Jose Mourinho. Now, that's, that's a pretty serious, detailed compliment, isn't it? It is, yeah. Do you recognise yourself? Uh, yeah. 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 He's describing what you strategically set out to do in every game where you're playing against opponents who can move the ball and pass the ball well. Mm. That I'm, I would imagine... That's one of the best summations of your brilliance that you've heard. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And coming from Mourinho, it's no small praise. No small praise, no. I think, look, look into that, you've got to find a role for yourself in the team. You know, Manchester United, I, I learned very quickly that I came into the team as a right winger, mm-hmm. which I'm not a right winger, but I had to do a job for the team, which mm-hmm. I did. Then eventually I started to play in central midfield and I looked to the side of me and you got Roy Keane and Paul Scholes. Roy Keane controlled the midfield he was the boss of the midfield so I knew that Scolzi is technically one of the best players of all time so you got them too so I realised quickly well I'm going to have to be the legs of this team I'm going to have to be the the water carrier I'm going to have to be the one who will set a tempo and, and get the ball back and drag opponents away to let those two play and then I've got, I know I've got Ronaldo outside me I'm going to we want Ronaldo to attack so if he doesn't track his full back I'm going to be the first one over there to, to do it, to win the ball back and give it to Ronaldo. So I learned very quickly that my physical and stopping opposition and setting a tempo in a match was going to be very important if I wanted to have a long career at Manchester United. And playing against those players every day in training gave me the practice to do that. And that's not me saying I'm not a good football player. I believe I was a good football player, but you've got to look around you and realise, yeah, not as good as him as that, not as good as him as that, but I can do this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It speaks about intelligence, that you've taken stock, you've made a decision, you've weighed up what's the right thing to do, you've done it in 300, nearly 400 Manchester United games later and lots and lots of medals, it tells you that you made a good decision. But the way you've described it, again in my opinion, is that 
that's not necessarily a defensive job you're doing because when you talk about winning it back, that's an offensive thing, that's a creative thing. When mm-hmm. you talk about what I love and what I was slow to learn, but when you listen to intelligent people, you pick up bits. This game of spoof that you can play to drag a player where he shouldn't want to go. But if you're cleverer than him, you can do things to open. And what he doesn't know is he's, he thinks he's fine because he's gone with you or you're going where I went off. Look what just happened. That, to me, is, is chess. It's very tactical. It's very, it, it needs intelligence. And mm. Presumably, it means that you think a lot about the game. That's not just instinctive, made up on the spot. It's product of taking time to think about football. Yeah, exactly. And you learn from experiences. You know, probably one of my most important games at United was in my first season. It's the semi-final uh, in Villa Park against Arsenal, the Invincibles team. And I was given a specific job that day to stop the error. Do you know what? I'm probably way... 70 kilos, I'm like 19. I'm going up against very six foot four. He's probably the most physical player in the Premier League. But I made it my mission. I was going to stop him playing, and I did. And, I, and, and the manager said, and "Your energy, run him that way and get in the box." And, and every time he gets the ball, I want you to be on top of him and to stop him playing and to stifle him. And fin- I managed to do it that day and got a lot of praise for it. And we won the match. Walter Smith was another one who, when he came in, he pulled me to the side and, and spoke about how he thought I was very good at, he's a very good player, but he said I was very good at getting to opponents quickly. And a lot of people get there, but then they stop. He said, you get there and tackle. Mm-hmm. And he said, don't keep doing that, it's mm-hmm. very important. And all of a sudden I've gone from somebody who I didn't really think was a great tackler or who loved to play midfield and get on the ball. And and if you looked at me when I was any of my younger games, you know, I'm the one almost was like, be the more of the, the one who got on the ball and I'd have people around me to do that sort of thing. But very quickly I realised that I'm playing a midfield beside two of the best midfielders of all time. And one of them, probably the most technical of all time, Paul Scholes, and, and Roy Keane, the most dominant midfield player. So you have to do other things that, not that they've not got, that allows them to do what they can do and, and there's no denying that Roy was a little bit older and, and Scolzi we, we needed energy in the team and I was the one to get in to go on again I feel English teams did well in Europe when they played at a high tempo yeah. and Sir Alex used to speak about it and I was the trigger for the high tempo I was I was the one who who was the first one you know we had Wayne Rooney and you had other players Carlos Tevez at the time when we won the Champions League but in the midfield, I was the one who was going to try and start that tempo, mm-hmm. where it'd be to go and press someone really quickly and highly, and to get about people. And when we played at that tempo, we felt we could beat the technically maybe superior teams in the Champions League. Because teams like that might be overwhelmed; they literally didn't have time to think or yeah. do the, the the things that were normal to them, and then they didn't have another game. If you were mm-hmm. on them that intelligently and that quickly, is that a correct summation? And of because it? we didn't feel that they played at that tempo week in week out, yeah. and it's not easy to turn it on no. and off. And we felt with that atmosphere, especially at home, we didn't. We were a lot more sensible away from home. But at home, we felt like we've got to make this game as quick as possible. Quick throw-ins, quick free kicks, keep the tempo high, relentless pressure. You know, foreign teams like to build out from the back. You know, English teams just go really direct. You know, so right in the face, really press them and play an old-fashioned style English game, real high tempo, and know we had quality to play when we had the ball as well because we could build up just as slowly and play out the back and playing with speed we felt that's how we would we could win the matches and, and it was true we won so many in that way I've got no apologies to make about praising you because the reason that I asked you to come on the big interview is that apart from liking you I admire you so it's my contention seriously that had you not played next to schools for so long <laughs> I think you'd have been better recognised as a passer 
So I think you have a terrific technique, but also a brain for knowing where the ball should go, not just where can I put it and it'll look good or it might free him. I think you're very strategic at your You remind me of Busquets. I've said that to you before and I mean it. It's meant as a compliment. Maybe you prefer Redondo, I don't know. But I genuinely think that that's something that is under recognised in your career. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I think that... I think I was a very a, a good passer. I still think I'm a very good passer of the ball, but, you know, you're talking about the levels of Roy. Roy Keane was the, one of the best passers of the ball I've ever seen. And that's another... Everyone speaks of Roy in, Keane as... In terms of what? In terms of his touch and his pace in which he passed the ball forward and always passed it forward and broke the lines of the opposition quickly. Mm-hmm. He was the best at that. At breaking the opposition's line and getting attacking players onto transition, his touch was immaculate. He had the best first touch... All these things were so underrated in his game. Everyone looked at him as this ferocious competitor and box-to-box runner and tackler. That wasn't false, though. That wasn't false, <laughs> but with the ball, he had bit one of the best first touches and the best pass forward into the attacking half to break lines of the opposition they've ever seen. And then you got Paul Scold, who probably off the back, maybe got recognised even more for his control in the game abilities when Roy moved on. Mm-hmm. Because Roy controlled the midfield. Scolzi then was the one who got forward and got goals and used his technique higher up the pitch. So what you're describing there, if Scholes was a better passer, or was he? If he was, what made him a better passer than Roy? If he wasn't, why is his name sacred in terms of an Englishman who could use the ball compared to Roy? Help me on that one. Um, I'm not sure, actually, because... I think I think Roy's very underrated in that respect. Scolzi is a master, though. Scolzi had a bit the unbelievable football brain. Scolzi could pass at five yards, ten yards. Did he have yards. a bigger range of bigger passing. range of passing? Okay. Yeah, definitely. I think that was maybe more what I was trying. Maybe trying. Yeah, Scolzi's mm-hmm. range of passing from five to ten to control in the game to little flicks around the corner and things like that. But I, I still think that Roy's was very very underrated. Did you ever? Felt to pay attention in training one day and get the ball off your head from schools from 50 yards away, which famously he did. Always he scared of you? <laughs> no, I was. I never. Um, always made sure I went to the toilet before I go to the training pitch. <laughs> and no, he was famous for it, you know. But he's that's that's the level with Paul. That's that's what he did. You know, he's unbelievable player. I played with so many unbelievable players that, but he he does stand out as probably the most all round special. It's complete coincidence that you name those two. But I want to ask about something that I suppose, well, if it were me, it would be a painful memory. You were falsely suspended for Rome. They both missed the camp now, I think for legitimate bookings. Each of them, I was at the Turin game and I was sorry for them, but they were both genuine bookings. Yours wasn't. Yours was a mistake, so Alex called it a tragedy. And I was there the night before the game, impoverished, out with journalists. I was a freelance, I couldn't afford to pay my dinner. I was sitting there moping around. And who should walk along the side of the pavement but Ted Beckham? So he stops and says hello, because we did our ups and downs over the years, but we've become very friendly. And he was like, I'm just walking around Rome to soak this up. You know, this beautiful city, and it's red everywhere. Because, you know, it wasn't just about David for him anymore. It was like, he's one of the most passionate United fans. You know, so he was just gushing with joy about this. But you had to spend a lot of time on your own wandering around Rome that day because you weren't part of it. What, was, what were those couple of days... Like, what do you take from it as a lesson about life or 2009? What does it mean to you now? Yeah, it's massive regret, but I've basically my burning desire, like, from a child was to play in a Champions League final. And I've, like, three times I've been, like, 
I was on the been on the bench twice and never got on the pitch and maybe in the final that I definitely would have started I get the red card and I've just never quite achieved that and the, the burning desire and drive that that gave me though at United probably helped me produce good performances and stay there as long mm. as I did in longevity and, and things like that um, I spoke to my dad very quickly after the game and he went because there was talk of like about getting rescinded and that he's like forget about it he said get there next year concentrate on winning the league and I took, him, took that on board in a lot of ways it, your, your stock gets higher when you miss a game and I think that's a perfect example of that for me and that might sound but you know people we would have done this or we missed and sometimes and by default you become a better player mm. and I think that's true because and even in your times when you're out of the side when you're ill you're not been there for a while you know people oh we missed people remember the good times don't they I think that's a, a saying but even if my stock went higher and the Man United fans I still I would still change it to play in that final yeah. definitely without a shadow of a doubt I expect that aside from that passion to lift the cup and to play in that game and to fulfil a boyhood dream the, the competitor in you and the analyst in you would have been looking at those two Barcelona sides I'm leaving Moscow aside now because effectively you're a Champions League winner I might ask in a minute how you feel about that but the history books will always say you know Dan Fletcher was part of a Champions League winning squad but analytically I'm fairly sure you'd have liked to have done what Jose was talking about there and set yourself about stopping what Alex said you know they'll kill you with your passing and from my humble point of view even if he listens to this I think particularly in 2011 he picked the wrong team you weren't available in 2009, so you couldn't rescind the red card. But, boy, they got a lot of space in the two games. Now, I've followed Alex Ferguson's career closer than he has. And to hear Alex Ferguson say, after Rome, that goal after nine minutes killed us. And that's the most atypical Alex Ferguson phrase ever. How can an Alex Ferguson team be beaten after nine minutes at 1-0? Mm-hmm. But it was because that team wouldn't really wouldn't give the ball back. And I think both in 2009 and 11, when we, we spoke a lot before Wembley, and I was convinced that you were going to make it and that they would make a difference. I think, genuinely, I, maybe you think you're laughing at me now, maybe you think it's not your place to say it, but I think United would have been a damn sight closer to winning it had you been doing what you've just talked about, which was your art of making sure the good players can't play as well as they want to. That must be a separate frustration that you didn't get at. Test yourself against Xavi and Iniesta and Messi at their best and, and maybe beat them. No, I think in 2009, I think it was a big part of our game plan and the way we, me not being there, as I spoke about, being the one to set a tempo and, and how we beat Arsenal in the semi-finals and how we you know, we were relentless in pressing and, and getting against them and setting a tempo in the match. And um, I personally think we were favourites in that final. I know a lot of people won't believe it, but and going in 2009, I felt like, I think maybe that, not that we didn't respect Barcelona, but there was no fear of Barcelona at that time. And I think that might have ultimately helped us go in and win the match. They weren't regarded as the great team as they were. They were on the, they were going towards that. That was almost like the game Agreed. stamped it. Totally right. And we felt, I felt we would still win the game in without me. And I think the manager speaks about people not following the game plan to the, to the letter. And we might get away with that in other games, but maybe you don't get away with it in Champions League final. And he still holds true that the players didn't fulfil what was expected of them or what was asked of them in the game. And maybe we did change the style and we would play because because I wasn't in midfield. And I think we did a little bit because we we didn't really go to relentlessly press them and stop them playing as maybe we should have or could have. 
I regret it because I feel like I could have made a difference. Yeah. I know people laugh at that. No, I asked you the question and I'm yeah. saying it sincerely. Yeah. It's not praise because we're sitting no. across the table. I think if somebody can't see that, they don't watch football very well. Mm. Not just because of what you did or what Man United played like, but what Barcelona don't like. All right, we, neither of us can say you'd have won the game, you wouldn't have won no. the game. But if you even look at how the first goal comes and the amount of room that a 60% fit Andres Iniesta has to run with the ball before feeding it to Eto'o, Again, from my point of view. Now, it didn't mean no harm as a freelance journalist in Barcelona for them to win it. So I'm not actually saying I regret it, but it sticks out a mile. Yeah, exactly. And we start the game so well. And, you know, in 2009, I was physically very, very, mm-hmm. you know, per- like powerful and, and box to box and stamina levels were very, very high. I was, you know, I'd started to get a bit of strength and, you know, not being the biggest physique in, in ever. And, and I could have I could have done it for 90 minutes, pressed and, and closed down and harried and made it so difficult. And, um, the team was built to play that day. That's how we got to the final. You know, Carlos Tevez, Wayne Rooney. You know, they could run and press all day. We we, we had the capabilities of doing it. We didn't follow our game plan, and and we started the game very well and should go in the lead. But it's, it's true in the both games for twenty minutes we managed to be able to sort of impact the game. But over ninety, we we just couldn't do it. And ultimately, especially in two thousand eleven, they completely dominate and control the game. That's because I don't think I was physically able no, to do it in two thousand eleven. I just come back from my illness, the first bout of it, and looking back, I was very fortunate to even make the bench. I think in your head you think you are, but looking back, I don't think I, I was physically at a point where I could have done what I'd have liked to have done in that final. In, 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 in life, you know, you've beaten the illness. It was a debilitating, depressing, horrible experience for you and your family. But you have beaten it. You're healthy, you're fit, you're young, you're talented. So rubbish though that experience was, you know, you, we move on and life is good. But if you look at 2011, if you look and say, my illness meant I couldn't have been the real Dan Fletcher on the pitch. So therefore, without saying you were a spectator... Tell me a little bit about, because we, I think I've never heard an outpouring of praise for a football match, maybe with the exception of when I was growing up in 1970, for that game in particular. And Man United fans would text me or go on Twitter and say, we were, we were well beaten. No soreness, like, almost like it was good to watch them. What, what were the things about that side as you watched them? What was that experience of being close but not involved in that that greatest team club team ever maybe that night at Wembley what what do you think of them that was the ultimate performance as well as the ultimate you know so you can have great teams but they put in the ultimate performance on the ultimate stage the Champions League final and they, they performed to the highest level I think they could and I think to, for the, the great team to do that on such an occasion I think it speaks volumes as well you know we get great performances that can happen in league matches they can happen in group stages of the Champions League but for them to execute in a Champions League final the way we did, we, we didn't lay a glove on them that night. We, we scored a fantastic goal. It's an unbelievably good goal, isn't it? Uh, and I think, I can't remember too many other chances apart from that. <laughs> and it took us scoring a fantastic goal to even to get a goal. And it was almost like, it's undefendable, the goal. I think if Barcelona even look at it, the move, 1-2, the way we scored, the finish, everything about it, that speaks volumes of the match that it took us scoring an unbelievable passing one touch move and an unbelievable finish to get one goal in the match when the rest of the time we didn't really lay a glove on them I was speaking to Abidal the other day who came through a a similar experience to you in that you know he'd fought back from a tumour he'd left a note to himself I don't know if you know this he played England at Wembley before he was diagnosed with his tumour in 2010 that season 
And he, he, he said that they had a fad for doing that, the French team. They would leave themselves notes. If they were playing the Stade de France and they were going to be back there for a major qualifier or there was a big cup final, they would leave a note to themselves, tuck it away, see if anybody found it, like kids, really. But Abidal left himself a little note in winter 2010 when France beat England 2-1. Benzema scored and he went, I am coming back. This note is to you. I'll be here in May. They went back and it, it had been tidied up, it had been cleaned, it had been taken away. But on that night, you, you wouldn't have been conscious of it at the time, but you must have been conscious later that Puyol and Xavi got together and said to the lads, we're going we're gonna to have a down the arm, man, he's going to lift the cup because he's just beaten cancer. Maybe that sounds obvious to do, but to me, I think it's not, not a lot of people in football do that. You can't get Platini or Blatter out of the trophy shop because they want to be still holding up the idiots that they are. But they were like, I tell you what, the greatest moment of our lives, let's, let's give it to the French guy. Yeah. You've been in dressing rooms all your life. What kind of, what does that make you feel like? What do you, what do you think of that gesture? I think it, it speaks volume for the, the the team that they had, the morale they had, what leaders they were, and you know to win the Champions League, to be captain. That's what you think about to go and lift the trophy and to give that up. Everyone might say that's because they've done it before or whatever, but to give that up to someone, I think it shows the power of football. And I experienced it with Malinus about how people contact that you would never believe and wish you luck and think about you and, and ask you how you're doing in certain situations and I think it puts rivalry aside it puts winning stuff aside and it puts, puts somebody who's ultimately could have lost their life mm-hmm. and who's showed determination and courage to battle back and and then for his teammates to give him that honour to go and lift the Champions League for Barcelona you know I think it, it maybe speaks volumes of why they were such a great team as well because they had that respect for each other, they had great leaders with compassion and not only were they fantastic footballers but to be a great team it's your environment, it's your dressing room that drives you as well, you know people, you, there's been so many great individuals but they normally don't make a great team mm-hmm. and then having a great team means having a great dressing room and all my time at Manchester United we, we had a fantastic dressing room that they respected each other and drove each other forward and I think you can see from Puyol and Xavi that they ran the dressing room they ran the squad, they drove the squad to be the best and then they also made the decisions that ultimately allowed Abidal to lift the trophy. I think that speaks volumes of them as people and also tells you why they were such a great team. I mean, I agree with everything you've said there, but my experience is that not everybody in a dressing room necessarily gets on or even likes each other. You use the word respect, mm. so they don't necessarily need to be best buddies, but there's a lot of tension and jealousy and rivalry in football dressing rooms. That's Fair, true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, because you want to be in the team and only eleven can play, and you know other players want to be the stars. I think it's recognising that when that goes beyond, it's good to have that. And I think everyone should have that. Everyone should want to be in the team. I think you should always think that you should be playing when you're not, because that drives you. But that's when it goes overboard, when it turns to jealousy, when it starts affecting the squad. I think that's when it becomes a problem, and I think that that soon gets alienated and eventually passes to the manager that. This is going beyond a competitive drive now. This is becoming a poison in the dressing room. And ultimately, that was always dealt with. Because Sir Alex is good at spotting and... Or, or maybe maybe, players. maybe some of the players deal with it too. Because you have to have your own little kangaroo court without the manager being involved mm-hmm. all the time, I suspect. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, and leaders don't accept it. They've got different ways of showing you. Scolzi never spoke to you. He'd kick Lumsey in the training ground to show you. Kings would be the same, you know. They they wouldn't they wouldn't have a go at you in the dressing room as such, or, or pick you out like that. But they'd maybe team together and go, all right, we'll show them on the training ground today. 
and they literally kicked like, kick lumps out of them and that was their way of sending the message Roy Keane would be in your face and just tell you mm-hmm. and pull you aside you know there's different ways of doing it and it quickly it quickly gets solved and the manager speaks to higher ranked players in the squad as well and asks how's he settling what's happening there what's the situation and and makes a decision ultimately it's the best thing for the team you lead I think I think when those people you've been talking about moved on you, you, I know you stepped into the vacuum and, and attempted to keep the spirit and, and to show examples maybe in a different way than schools and gigs did but was that a natural thing to you was it satisfying was it I felt it was my role because it came comfortably to me and I'd, I'd, I'd learned from great leaders. I think it's in you, but I think it depends on what your upbringing is and what you've been around. I've, I, was in, I was in a dressing room with a lot with leaders, mm-hmm. you know. I first got in a dressing room with Roy Keane, Lauren Blanc, the class of 92, Gary Neville, they had, they were like, they had their own little core group. They were leaders amongst in themselves. And I think then you look around the dressing room and when big leaders and players go you feel the responsibility that you have to step up to do it. And as long as it's not, you're not forcing yourself to be someone you're not, I think it, it came quite naturally to me. And I respected what, how they helped me and I know how I felt like I could help foreign players sell. I know I could help young players and I know how important a, a, a good, vibrant dressing room is to ultimately have a successful team. It's time to say uh, thank you because you've got a life and it's time to stop talking about football because you'll very well know that if you didn't stop me we'd be here till next Tuesday talking <laughs> about it thanks for the pleasure of sharing a career well spent one day there's so much more to talk about in your life and career one day we'll maybe ask if we can come back yeah. for the meantime I think you've made a lot of people enjoy this time with you Darren many thanks thank you very much Graham. Thank you for joining us for season 2018-19. We've got huge creative plans for the months ahead, but we do need your help to make them happen. Please go right now to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and become a social, become a paying member and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. Last season, socios listened to nine exclusive big interviews including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, Roberto Di Matteo and loads of me talking about football. The Premier League, the Champions League, Spanish football. I'm sure they enjoyed it and you will too. Support us, join us. Thank you. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 